Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Well, Matthew chapter six, that's all the commercials I've got. Matthew six, we're gonna begin in verse number nine. Let's stand as we read God's word and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Matthew chapter six and verse number nine. Jesus says, pray then like this. Now we're gonna say this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You may be seated. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would take this word, plant it deep within our hearts. Father, we pray for our student ministry as they're going through another time of worship and as they went out into the community to Share your love through good works. Father, we pray that tonight you would raise up the next Billy Graham, that you would raise up the next Lottie Moon. Father, that we would see the fruit, the harvest of righteousness flow through our student ministry that would make ripples around the world. Father, we pray that, they, that you would move tonight. We pray, Lord, for the Keys family. We pray for our church family. May the words of my mouth, may the meditation of our hearts please you in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you struggle with your prayer life? Martin Lloyd-Jones said that there is nothing that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. He said that everything that we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. Now that may seem like a shocking statement, but as a pastor, I want to agree with that. You know, reading the Bible is easier than praying. Reading books about the Bible is easier than praying. Leading a Bible study for an hour about prayer is easier than praying for an hour. Writing a sermon is much easier than it is to pray about a sermon on prayer. It's easier to preach the sermon about prayer than to pray over the sermon about prayer. Exercise is easier than prayer. Giving is easier than prayer. Singing worship songs is easier than prayer. Coming to church and attending a small group, uh, serving in student or kids' ministries is easier than prayer because prayer is hard work. It's frustrating. It's humiliating. Now, I'm not talking about Mickey Mouse prayers. Those are easy. I'm talking about real, deep, vibrant prayer. And the reason why it's difficult and frustrating is because we don't necessarily know how to pray. It's a chore, not a choice. It's a duty, not a delight. But yet prayer is indispensable 
for the Christian. Well, we're going to be going these next few weeks through the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is the prayer that teaches us how to pray every other prayer. Al Mohler said that the Lord's Prayer takes less than 20 seconds to read aloud, but it takes a lifetime to learn. The reason is because every single phrase of the Lord's Prayer is drawing from a wealth of biblical teaching. Tim Keller says that virtually the entire Bible is in the Lord's Prayer, compressed and turned into adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Many have prayed the Lord's Prayer. Many around our world have uttered these phrases. Probably there are no more, uh, no, no, there's no other phrase or grouping of phrases have ever been read or repeated than this, these set of phrases. And so many of you maybe grew up in a tradition that constantly said the Lord's Prayer. And maybe in your home, you as a child growing up, or maybe even now in your home, you, you pray and, and say the Lord's Prayer, but yet you don't really know what it means. Well, the Lord's Prayer was given to us to unlock the secret to a prayer life. And what we see is that this is the model prayer. And, and the model prayer begins by giving us the very foundation of our prayers. And that is, who are we addressing? It's really who we are addressing. It's the, the address that you're mailing your letters to. And then you have the petitions. And the address that we are mailing our prayers to, sending our prayers to, is our Father in heaven. And Jesus here is going to teach us in this beginning that we have a personal relationship with the almighty God of the universe who has a perspective and power that's greater than ours. So, so as we understand what, what separates Christian prayer from all other prayer is who we're speaking to. And so number one, what I want you to see is in those two, those two words in the beginning, our father we see that we have a personal relationship with God. In verse nine, Jesus says, pray then like this. Jesus is instructing his disciples in the way of prayer. This has been called through history, the Lord's Prayer, but really it should probably not be called the Lord's Prayer. It should be called either the model prayer or the disciples prayer. And the reason why is because Jesus would have never prayed this prayer. You say, how would you say that? He just, didn't he just pray it there? Jesus would have never prayed this prayer. This would never be a prayer that he would have given to God the Father. And you say, well, well, why would you say that? Why would he give us a model prayer that he never prayed? And it's because Jesus would never, ever, ever have to pray to his Father to forgive him of any sin. But yet, Jesus being fully God and really man is the only one truly qualified to teach us to pray. I mean, just imagine you had the greatest NFL football coach and you were to ask him, teach me how to draw up a play. Or, or imagine you had the greatest chef in all the world and you said to teach me how to cook. Well here, Jesus is the only one who is truly qualified to teach us how to pray. And so he says, start your prayers, the model, the pattern with our Father. Now, as you read through the prayer, you're going to notice something. There are no singular personal pronouns. So you don't see I, me, or my anywhere, neither in the Greek nor in the English. All you see is personal pl plural pronouns. And so you'll see are and us. And so when referring to God, he's not my father, but he's our father. 
And so what does that tell us? We're not only children. I'm not an only child. You know, I grew up with a sister four years older than me, and for all of her life, she's grew up as an only child in her mind. <laughs> we are part of a family. It's a weird family, but we're siblings. If you're a child of God, if you're saved, you're part of a family. We are interconnected. We are brothers and sisters. Prayer, therefore, is not an individual sport. You say, Pastor, why is it important? And here's why it's important, because we live in a day, especially in our Western civilized world of radical individualism in which everything is about me. My worship is about me. It's about my preferences. It's about what I like. It's the volume that I like. It's the style that I like. It's the sound that I like. It's the person I like leading it. It's about my prayer life. It's about my walk with God. It's about me. It's like Tom T. Hall saying, me and Jesus got our own thing going. Me and Jesus, we got it all worked out. Me and Jesus, we got our own thing going and we don't need anyone to tell us what it's about. And so Francis Chan called this kind of view, he called it blackjack Christianity in which it's just us and the dealer and no one else around us matters. But God has saved us and put us into a family. And therefore, when we pray, prayer shouldn't just be about us. We shouldn't be selfish in our prayers. We are coming to our Father, not my Father. John O., who writes a book on prayer, said this. He says, prayer was never meant to be merely a personal exercise with personal benefits, but a discipline that reminds us how we are personally responsible for others. We must reject individual mindsets. We are a family with the same father. So he says, our father. Now in the Greek, it actually begins with the word father. God is called Father 15 times, at least in the Old Testament, often referring to the relationship that God had with the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, God is called Father 250 times, and Jesus himself calls God Father 170 times. Now, if you remember the definition I gave you last week, and it won't be on the screen to my chagrin because I forgot to make it highlighted, but if you remember what I gave you the definition of prayer, hopefully you can remember it, is that prayer is communication with God the Father through the person and work of Jesus Christ in the power and assistance of the Holy Spirit. So prayer is communication with God the Father. Now, Therefore, when Jesus instructs us, you know, if you were going to describe God with one word, what would you use to describe him? Well, you'd say, well, creator, judge, holy, almighty, king, Lord, savior. Jesus says, no, you call him father. Father is the closest relationship possible with God. You can't get in any greater relationship with God than Father, not buddy, not friend, father. And the truth is, is that God has always been a father. Jesus has always been the son. Therefore, God, the father has always been a father. And so what makes Christian prayer unique is the awareness of who we're praying to. We're not praying to our girlfriend or our boyfriend in the sky. We're not praying to our butler we're not praying to the big man upstairs. But, but we're also not praying to our dictator who art in heaven. 
We're not praying to some hot-headed despot. We are praying to our loving Father. And listen, when you and I understand who we're praying to, it helps us pray. See, I think that what's happened is that often when we pray, we're more aware of who we are than who he is. And I think that the less we become aware of who we are and the more we become aware of who he is, it will transform how we pray. Now, Jesus is our father, but here's what you have to understand. God's not everybody's father. There, there is no universal fatherhood of God and there is no universal brotherhood of man. God is the creator of all, but he ain't the daddy of all. As a matter of fact, in John 8, Jesus told the Pharisees that their father was the devil. Paul would even have that similar sentiment in the book of Acts, speaking of those who their father was the devil. Those who reject the son, Jesus Christ, have no relationship with the father. So calling God father is not a human right, it's a spiritual privilege. John 1, 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power, the right, the privilege to be called the children of God. It's a privilege. It doesn't come through natural birth. It only comes through new birth. Beloved, we are God's children now. And so a true father-child relationship with God is only made possible through Jesus. Jesus is really the only one who inherently has the right to call God Father. And though, so Jesus came to this world to make you and I, who were God's enemies, God's children. We call God Father only based on the established relationship that Christ, number one, himself enacted, number two, affected, and number three, achieved at the cross. And so Paul, when he writes to the churches of Galatia, in Galatians 4, he, here's what he says. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now you may say, well, pastor, why is it here that Paul is using very specific gendered language? Shouldn't he be using non-binary language here? Shouldn't this be gender neutral? Why would Paul say, especially if you're a female in the room, that you're a son? Doesn't that seem to be wrong? Now, Paul here is doing something very radical. We don't understand it because in our westernized mindset, we, we don't understand what, what really he was saying in the first century ancient culture. See, adoption then and even now is a legal institution. In the Greco-Roman world, it was almost always done by a man who was wealthy that had an estate but had no son, had no heir. And so what he would do is he would often adopt a slave or someone that, that came into his life to be his heir, and that son would be a son forever and would inherit the estate of his father. Women were never adopted into families. Women were either aborted or sold into slavery. Women were never brought up to the position of being an adopted son. They, were, they had no legal rights. And so what Paul does, it's so radical. You're saying, Pastor, why are you so excited? Because it's radical. I know it's Saturday night. The Bengals are playing. You probably have it on your phone while I'm preaching. I understand. Bunch of Bengals fans in here. But Paul takes the 
legal institution that only men participated in and turns it into how God adopts us into his family and applies it to all Christians. So in Galatians 3, 26 and 28, here's what he says. He says that we are all sons of God through faith, dot, dot, dot. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male nor female. Here's what he's saying. If you're a Christian, regardless of your gender, male or female, you have equal access and equal love from God the Father. Now, in the Roman world, you were second-class citizens, but in Christ, you are equal in value, essence, dignity, and worth. And so what you see, anyone who tells you that the Bible is some archaic, chauvinistic book, they've not read it. This book has done more to expand the image of God the dignity of humanity. You know, this weekend is Martin Luther King weekend. And as we stand against racism, as we stand against injustice, the only way that we would ever know to stand against it is the word of God. Women have been brought up in society because of the word of God, not pushed down. And any interpretation of the Bible that would push women to be subservient to a man is not interpreting the word of God correctly. Because if you are in Christ, male or female, you have equal value, essence, dignity, and worth. And no man and no woman can take that away. Now, I didn't mean to say that, but you got it for free. Here we go. And so what does it mean to be adopted? It meant three things. To be adopted, number one, meant an inheritance an identity and intimacy. So number one, an inheritance. So to call God father meant that the only way you could is you had to be adopted. And when you were adopted, you received an inheritance. As a child of God, you are an heir to God. That's what Paul was getting at. And so what does it mean to be an heir? Well, you know, if you are doing well in business and real estate and you make billions and billions of dollars, you did it by hard work and determination that's yours, all of it. But if you adopt a child, what you've worked hard for is now theirs, even though they didn't do anything to earn that money. Because you've adopted them, they are now legally your heir and they share in the wealth. Well, to be in Christ is to be a child of God and it is worth infinitely more than being the heir of a billionaire. So if Warren Buffett was your adopted dad, that's great. But having God as your father is even greater. Now, the question is, what is God worth? Like, if you were to think about it, we were talking in, in prayer time before the service about how much debt our nation is in, trillions and trillions of dollars. I've always thought, what if we just said, you know what, we're done, we're not going to pay. <laughs> what would happen? But we think about the, 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 the amount of wealth in the world and, and the amount of trillions, but how would you measure God? Well, you wouldn't measure him by money. You wouldn't measure him by property, and you wouldn't measure him really by material possessions. Really, the only way you can not even really measure him, but just understand him is in glory. Well, what is glory? Well, glory is weightiness, it's holiness, it's awesomeness, supremacy, majesty, excellence. It's what we all long to see. I mean, the reason why we want all this money and the reason why we love sports and our teams and we, we love stories of, of, of awesome people and, and we're drawn to celebrity and drawn to royalty is those are all little glories 
They just give us a glimpse of the greater glory. They're just little vignettes or silhouettes of just something greater. And yet God is infinitely greater than, than the greatest person you can imagine. I mean, God is greater than the Kardashians. I mean, and the Queen of England. So if you're a child of God, here's what you have to understand. One day you will inherit glory. A glory that you and I didn't do anything to earn that we do not deserve and we will experience it like never before and we will have a joy and happiness that there are no categories to describe. And so whatever you experience here, whether good or bad, will mean nothing compared to what is coming. I mean, you think about that in your life. Whatever you're living through, whatever hell you're living in or whatever heaven you're living in here on earth pales in comparison to what's coming. Paul said this to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He said, for this light momentary affliction. Now, he was saying a mouthful there. He wasn't just saying having a bee sting on a Sunday afternoon. No, this light momentary affliction was talking about shipwreck and snake bit and beat up and stoned and left for dead and mistreated, betrayed, put in jail, hurt, offended, homelessness, starvation, Poverty, these light momentary afflictions are just, what are they doing? They're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I mean, think about this. If you have a billion dollars in the bank, are you really going to be upset about losing $5? I mean, think about all the happiness and excitement you felt. Maybe recently, um, your team won the national championship. Maybe you're a Georgia Bulldog. And, uh, you know, this is the first time in my lifetime they've won anything. <laughs> and, and so maybe you're Chris Lowry. And your team wins a championship. You've been waiting, longing. I mean, old men were crying when the Bulldogs won a championship. I mean, I remember when Kentucky has won their multiple championships in basketball. <laughs> I've seen at least three in my lifetime. But it just, you know, grown men are crying. Dogs are singing. Bulldogs, that is. And so just imagine the next day what it would have been like for me in the office to see Chris Lowry. He's strutting around in his little red Georgia Bulldog pants. He's excited. He's happy. He's rubbing it in. Maybe that's you. Maybe your team is one. You rub it in. Here's the question. How long does that excitement last? How long does that happiness last? A few days? A month? And then what happens? You think about next season. I mean, they were already put out top 25. And guess who the top two are going to be? Alabama, Georgia. The odds right now are two to one. That glory doesn't last. And think about that. On top of that, that glory is shared glory at best. Chris Lowry didn't do anything to contribute to that victory. <laughs> I mean, when I watched Kentucky defeat those dastardly hordes from Tennessee by almost 30 points, and I got up and I said to all my friends, we won. I didn't do anything. All I did was sit and watch and yell at them. And they didn't hear me. And whatever I have said would have not amounted to anything to them. 
we contribute, we get a part of a glory that will never end, that we did any, nothing to contribute to, but yet we get all of the benefits of. When you call him father, that's what that means. Inheritance. I got to hurry up. I got excited. Number two, identity. In a legal adoption, the, the child's name changes. What the child once was and what's known as is now changed forever. The, the things, so, so what that means for you as a Christian is that the things that used to define you before God are now changed forever. So if you were addicted to drugs or if you had multiple abortions or if you were in horrible relationships or you were a blasphemer or you were disobedient or you were a murderer or you were a thief or you were a liar, all those things that you were known before God as have now been changed forever. You're no longer chained to your old identity. When God sees you, he doesn't see the old you. He sees the new you that he's making you to be in Jesus. Identity. Number three, intimacy. God's disposition towards you is no longer an enemy, but now in Christ, God loves you as he loves his son, Jesus. Jesus, when he was baptized after his obedience to the father, the father says, you're my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And so he speaks that now over you. We, we don't have to earn God's acceptance. We don't have to earn God's love. We already have it. In Christ, there's nothing that I could do that would make God love me more. And in Christ, there was nothing that I could do that ever make God love me less. God loves me as he loves Jesus. I'm just as close to God as Jesus is. The old hymn says, near, so very near to God. Nearer I could not be. For in the person of his son, I'm just as near as he. See, as a child, I have access. Just like your children have access like no one else. I mean, if your child needs you, it doesn't matter when, it doesn't matter where, it doesn't matter what it is. If you are a good parent, you'll go, you'll be, you'll do. If your child is sick in the middle of the night and they, they wake you up, You'll wake your wife up and say, hey, honey, will you help with him? <laughs> no, if they get sick in the middle of the night, you are up, you will help them. If they call you on the phone, you'll answer them before anyone else. Why? Because you love them. They have complete, absolute access to you. Same is true with the father. No one else but a child can wake a parent up at 3 a.m. for a glass of water. without being shot. <laughs> and if you that are evil know how to give good gifts to your children when they are thirsty in the middle of the night, how much more will your heavenly father give to you if you ask him in the middle of the night? See, we should never live as spiritual orphans who are fearful that God is not listening or that we've got to do something to get God's attention. What, what Jesus says, our Father, it teaches us that we have a future that is secure in Christ, that we have a new identity. We have complete access to God, our Father. And listen, every time we say, our Father, it should remind us of our eternal Adoption into the family of God. J.I. Packer said that if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of God, of being God's child, and having God as his father.
if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. Our Father, we have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's the first point. Second, in heaven. He has a perspective and power that is greater than ours. Our Father, not in a galaxy far, far away, in heaven. He is our Father in heaven. Now, why is it important that he is a heavenly Father? Why would this be so germane to our prayer? Because it teaches us that he is not an earthly Father. He is a heavenly Father, which means that he is not bound by the limitations of earth. You say, where is heaven? I would say, it's where God is. See, God is non-spatial. He's non-temporal. He's not limited by time or space. He lives, as the theologians say, in the eternal present. And so he is in time, but also above time. He sees the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. He is always near and available, and yet he has a perspective of all things. He knows the end of your story. He knows what you, he not only knows your entire life story, but he also knows what's going on right now. He not only knows how you're going to end with, how many number of hairs you'll have on your head when you end, but he also knows how many number of hairs you have on your head right now. For me, it's less every day. (laughs) Psalm 33, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out at all the inhabitants of the earth, you know, from a distance. You get perspective, whether it's distance in time or proximity to something, some situation, maybe it's physical distance. You see things clearer. Up close, it looks like this. You just see the tree. You go back, you see the forest. In in life, you you look back at the decisions that you made, and in the moment you made those decisions, it it was excruciating. But now you look back and, and you say, that was a good thing. Or maybe as a young person, you went through a horrific moment and and now you shake your head and say, you know what, God was doing something there. Even though I didn't see it, even though I didn't know it, he was doing something. And maybe you think about the worst time in your life, but in that moment, you were like, God, what are, I don't even know, what are you doing? Do you hate me? I mean, Warren Wiersbe said this. He said, don't get your theology from your circumstances because you may come to the conclusion that God doesn't love you. And so in the moment, you think, God, you don't love me. You hate me. What are you doing to me? But then in time, you say, God, thank you for what you did. And so if we, in our own natural life, with time and perspective, look back and see that there's a greater thing, then verse 8 Makes sense when Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Because he's our father in 
heaven. He has an eternal perspective. He has a global perspective. He knows everything. And so God sees what's going on in your life and he knows what's best for you. And he knows what you need and he knows what you don't need. And he sees things from a a far greater vantage than you and I do. But here's the great thing. He's not some hot-headed despot in the sky. He is your loving heavenly father. And so your best interest are a part of his calculations. So God does everything for his glory. And because of that, he does everything for your good. And so when you pray our father in heaven, it it reorients your view of God in life. And so Why it's important we say heavenly father or why it's important we say in heaven is because prayer brings new perspective and it puts God back into the picture of our lives. And so that when we talk to God, our father, we know that he knows what's best and we can tell him our needs. Again, it's a conversation. Jesus is not Santa Claus. You sit on his lap and tell him what you want and then jump off or take a picture and then jump off. No, he's your father. You tell him your fears, you tell him your hopes, you tell him your dreams, you tell him your concerns, you tell him what's perplexing you, you tell him your sin, and and it changes how you think. Now listen, he says, our Father in heaven. And so all throughout the Gospels, this sets the tone for everything that they were to approach. This was revolutionary. They had never heard anyone ever teach to call God Father, ever. And that's why Jesus says in 631, therefore, do not be anxious. The word anxious in the Greek means to have a divided mind. Saying, what shall we eat and what shall we drink and what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Jesus says, On the heels of teaching us how to pray, don't worry. Do you know worry is a sin? You say, Pastor, I'm not worried. I'm just concerned. (laughs) We worry about stuff all the time. I mean, some of you have, I have a PhD in worry. Jesus says worry is for people who don't have God as their father. But if you have God as your father and God knows best, then you know he's gonna take care of you, so don't worry. If he takes care of dumb birds, if he makes sure the lilies have clothes on, I mean, when's the last time you saw birds have heart conditions? When's the last time they went on antidepressants? You don't. If God can take care of a dumb bird, And a dying flower, can he not take care of you? And that's why he says, listen, you have to pray our Father in heaven because he has a perspective. He is your heavenly Father. Don't worry. Worry is trying to say to God, God, if I were in control of things, things would be different. Don't worry. So let's end with this. I know you're ready. We can trust God because he's our Father in heaven. Now, when you, some of you hear that, that's a struggle. Because you either A, didn't have a dad, or B, you had a 
bad dad. And you struggle seeing God as being wise, caring, loving, and trustworthy because that wasn't your experience growing up. I mean, maybe you were hurt by your dad. Maybe you were abandoned by your dad. Maybe you were abused by your dad your, or your father. I mean, you look at all the renowned atheists in the world, many of them had deep daddy wounds. Nothing can disrupt your view of God than having a bad dad. But here's what I want to say. Don't let your bad dad keep you from a relationship with the best dad. And rather than seeing your heavenly father through the lens of your earthly one, maybe you should evaluate your earthly father through the lens of your heavenly one. See, when Jesus taught us to pray, he says, when you call on to God, you call him dad. A dad who truly loves you, who cherishes you, who feels every pain you feel even greater than you feel. A dad who will do whatever it takes to do what is best for you. This is not necessarily new about God's character, but yet it was new to them because to that time they only saw that as being the nation of Israel. But yet you see God is not changing. God's always been father. And and here is what God said through the prophet Isaiah to his people. Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed you. I've called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba, in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. And I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life, Fear not, for I am with you. I give men in return for you. You say, how can I trust God? How do I know? How do I know? What did God the Father give up for you? He gave up his only son. You know, every recorded prayer of Jesus with exception of one, Jesus called God Father. There's only one prayer that Jesus ever prayed where he did not call God Father, and that was on the cross. It is there on the cross that Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jesus, the true Son of God, was forsaken by the Father so that you and I would never be forsaken. God treated Jesus as we should have been treated so that we can be treated like Jesus. He is our Father in heaven. You have through Jesus, a relationship with him. And he has a perspective greater than you. Let me end with this. It's not spiritual, but you need to hear it. I love the movie Taken. Liam Neeson, the actor, is in the movie Taken. I don't 
condone everything in the movie, but I do want you to understand that it's a very powerful movie. As a matter of fact, it was so great that they made three of them. (laughs) The plot of all three is the same. Someone is taken. Liam Neeson, who plays the dad in Taken One, had his daughter kidnapped in Paris. Liam Neeson was a former CIA operative, a spy. And in Taken One, there is a scene after the daughter has been kidnapped and and there's a phone call that is made and, and Liam Neeson knows that the kidnappers are listening on the other line. And here's what he says. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have any money. But what I do have is a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare to people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. And when I saw that, I couldn't help but think of God my Father. That's my dad. My dad, God the Father, went to the ends of the earth to get me back. He went through hell so that I can be with him in heaven. And the greatest privilege I have is for me to call my father in heaven, my dad. And I pray you can say the same. My prayer is, is that you have given your life to Jesus Christ. And my prayer is, is that if you have done that, that when you pray to him, you realize that you have access like no one else. And when you know you have all inclusive access to the creator of the heavens and the earth, who is all powerful, all knowing, all wise, and all good, that will cause you to want to pray like never before. You want to pray like Jesus? Then understand, God is your Father, but only if you have truly trusted in Jesus, the Son. And if you haven't, I want to give you an opportunity to do that tonight. I'm going to pray, and while I'm praying, you can just ask God to forgive you, to save you, to be the Lord and Savior of your life. But maybe you are a believer, and maybe tonight you would allow God to heal the daddy wounds in your soul and you would trust him with all of your life and you'll go out every day praying to your father who is in heaven. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the truths of the gospel that prayer is communication with the father through the work and person of Jesus the son by the power and assistance of God the Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray tonight that if those who do not know you as Savior, that today would be that day, tonight would be that night, whether watching online or in the room, that they would trust you with their life. 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and sing about the Father's love. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.